Hi again, listeners, and thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to support us, then please do think about subscribing. Every little helps. So whoever you're listening, give us a star rating and a like, or hit subscribe to get news on when the next shiny brand new episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast lands. But for now, please do enjoy the show. listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. Uh, today, Chris, we are doing our first film that has, I think, no animation in it whatsoever. So how are you feeling? No, I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling awkward. Not unlike the characters in the film, I hasten to add. I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm not, it's not that I'm going to struggle. I feel like this is going to be a challenge, but given that it's Terry Gilliam, given his, rep, um, given his reputation in uh, animation, I did a little bit of looking up and the film does have sort of um, effects in it, but not animation per se. So it's going to be an interesting one for me, I think. Well, don't worry, because uh, me and you aren't going to have to um, do this alone. We have a very special guest with us, um, Hope Dixon-Leach, um, who is, uh, well, people know her work from uh, the acclaimed Leveling, which um, received rapturous reviews a few years ago. Um, Peter Bradshaw described it as, as a folk horror without the horror. Um, Mark Kermo described it as an astonishing debut, and um, she's gone on to, uh, well, uh, future f- uh, works and acclaimed shorts and all these kind of stuff. So we're delighted to have you on the um, podcast, Hope, and thanks very much for getting us to talk about Brazil. Oh, thanks for having me, and it's uh, it's maybe one of my favourite films ever, so I'm very excited to talk about it. Well, let's start with that. Uh, why is Brazil one of your favourite <laughs> films ever, um, and and why did you pick it when we asked you to select a film to talk to us about? I think uh, I love Gilliam. I love Fisher King. I love Time Bandits. I love, you know, I kind of have a, a deep affinity for his point of view, but I think... Um, this film I saw when I was eight years old with my father, who perhaps should have been doing a better job at uh, censoring sort of what I was watching, <laughs> but it sort of completely terrified me and destroyed yeah. me in a way that, um, you know, film, very few films have. Um, sort of in the same way in The Time Bandits, you know, it has that same kind of existential horror. Um, and I think, I think that was sort of, so it stayed with me. But I think the thing I love about it is that as a, as a piece of, well, I'm going to just say lots of different things today. I'm sure we're going to talk about all these things. But as a, as a piece of craft, it is sort of immaculate and devastating. And as a piece of cinema, it is uh, visionary, obviously, and, but also incredibly political, which I find very exciting um, because I think... Uh, the best political films aren't normally about politics, and, and I sort of, I sort of love how this really gets its itself, um, you know, enjoys the humour and gets its its hands dirty with that. But I also think it's a film about cinema. So I think it's sort of lots of things that I love about films sort of all appear in this thing, and I, you know, I, I, the performances, the art design, the cinematography, the production design, you know, the music, everything is extraordinary so I you know there's there's nothing yeah it's just it's just up there I can't kind of think of a a film that is a film that I've won I wish I'd made as much as as this film 
Wow, that's high praise. Um, I'm assuming it's a film you've revisited throughout your life, or unless you got all of that at eight, in which case, <laughs> which case, well done. Um, um, but but sort of, how, how has the relationship changed? Have you sort of you know moved throughout life? Is it is it? Have you gone well, different I'm, bits of it? Sung more or? Um, I was quite scared of watching it again for quite a long time, so I didn't revisit it for a while, and then I did, and the bits that were terrifying to me, uh, I find quite hard to watch now, rather than. Scary. Do you know what I mean? And and uh, I, f I think it's a much harder watch than um, I have in my head. And I think, but I think it's worth it because of that. I think the payoff for this kind of com complicated narrative and this complicated characterization, you know, delivers. Um, and the characterization includes the world as much as uh, you know, as much as the people in it. Sure, we're big fans of world building. We are. Well, I think one of the things for me, as I said before, even though the film isn't isn't animated in the way that perhaps we've we've understood previously on this on this podcast, um, it has. And Gilliam himself has been written about within animation studies, obviously given his relationship to animation and and, and kind of his animated links um, in Monty Python's Flying Circus. And so there is scholarship on Gilliam within animation studies that talks about some of the things or some of the topic areas that are definitely applied to this movie um, in terms of subversion and alternate meanings. And you mentioned about how the best films or the best films about politics aren't political or they aren't about those things. Um, a lot of the stuff in terms of Gilliam's work in animation has been connected to the idea of kind of textual and the subtextual, what's this film saying? And then what's it it's sort of saying underneath that? Um, and so actually the subversive nature of the film, I can totally see and trace back to some of his sort of celebrated an animation work. Um, there are other links, certainly for me. I think world building is absolutely, absolutely. I was crying out for a, like a shot of a landscape or <laughs> daylight or an exterior, maybe, or something like this, um, which I thought was quite fun. And also there are some interesting, and I was saying to, to Alex just before uh, just beforehand, that um, it speaks very much to, to Wally. And actually the first teaser trailer for Wally reused the music from Brazil, um, Michael Kamen's theme from Brazil. And, and I actually knew it as the Wally music rather than the Brazil music, you know. Um, and so, but the, obviously the film Wally has themes about human labor versus technology, which again, I can totally see why the teaser trailer for Wally had a, the theme tune from Brazil in it, so I'm sort of in, I'm sort of coming at it in a sort of abstracted, yeah. I found it interesting as somebody interested in animation, even if the film itself doesn't contain animated sequences. Yeah, well, can I? I'm, I'm curious about how you would define animation because there's a huge oh. amount of. I mean, I, I'm sure you talk about this all the time, but no, there's no. there's a you know obviously there's a lot of matte painting and yes. there's a lot of you know um, costumes and special effects that have been animated to I would I would argue had be have sort of been animated in their very effects nature. So no, absolutely. Sort of I've got I've got a note here. Gilliam and animation must be visual effects because there are certain sequences right. in the and actually again the film appears a lot in top fifty animated sequences. So certain stuff with uh, with. Um, Robert De Niro's character, Tuttle, uh, and there are some effect shots in there. Um, and also I had a little note, the role of the plastic surgeon, Jim Broadbent's character, mm. that, that he is about mutating form. And one of the things that animation has, and actually one of the things that perhaps connects animation to fantasy, in fact, off air you tried to claim metamorphosis for fantasy, um, not a week ago, in fact, uh, metamorphosis and, and the changing or the changeability or the instability of, of, of the form. So um, for me, the film has effect shots, I guess, and special effect shots, as you say, like matte paintings, uh, models and miniatures as part of, mm -hmm. you know, certainly at the end, the climax of the, the film with the, with the um, explosion. Uh, but you know, I guess in terms of animation, it doesn't have 
the illusion of life. It doesn't have movement in the same way, but it, it is a very animated world. And that manifests, I think, through these exaggerated characters, these exaggerated human-like characters who are exaggerated in both appearance and personality and very extreme and actually the subversive nature of of Gilliam's um, animation work feeds into a set of character characters that are very extreme and full of internal contradictions and juxtapositions and things like this um, so yeah as I said I'm, I'm interested in kind of coming to the film in a hopefully a, a, a way that I was not expecting through animation as a lens can I do that classic academic thing and flip the question back? <laughs> because I'd be interested in what you would define as animation in that respect then because this is a conversation we do have all the time and everyone has a slightly different um, definition. For example, VFX artists don't identify as animators, we've no. discovered. So yeah, there's yeah. a whole industry distinction. Um, but you have a slightly more, I don't know, uh, well, I don't know. definition. No, no, I just, I, gen I genuinely hadn't thought about it. But, but I sort of, because I know Gilliam's, you know, yeah. history and animation, it's sort of, it, it feels like the same kind of continuum there. Cool. So it's sort of interesting to pinpoint at what point, you know, something, I guess, is, is a puppet animation, you know, Yes, mm. no. You know, it's kind of like, is in animation, is it just 2D? Is it 3D? You know, so it would be hard for me to kind of, you know, I think it's, you know, you know it when you see it. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah. it is kind of, if you've got something moving, which is not, you know, being driven by itself, you would kind of argue, I guess, that that's it's being literally animated, yeah. you know, and it's in the, I suppose it's in the, the process of the film, maybe, rather than, recording something doing that on its own so maybe that's the difference so you've got a puppet that's being engineered but the film itself if I may be uh, analog about it is still rolling whereas yeah. presumably you know traditional animation you would argue it's it's the sort of changing nature yeah. of each frame well I mean so actually there's when I mentioned earlier animation studies and how it's engaged with Gilliam perhaps as a discipline um, I'm going to do the awful thing of, re of reading a quote out but actually it's the last bit of the quote that I wonder gets us closer to, to Brazil so Paul Wells has written a, a piece um, on Terry Gilliam uh, and the chapter is called on being an impish god presumably alluding to, 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 to Gilliam. Um, he says that animation is one of the most significant art forms of the 20th century because it inherently accommodates a hybridity uh, of artistic and cultural practices that accurately reflect the tensions between modernity and the postmodern condition. Gilliam's animations engage with the logic of the cartoon. And that, maybe that's... Uh, when, I, when I watched, when I watched um, uh, Brazil, there was something, yes, subversive, but also, yeah, kind of unsteady and changeable and... Uh, these dramatic tonal shifts and obviously everything's very creative um, from the music to the set design the role of surrealism mm. one of animation's key values historically even today is the role of surrealism um, and that kind of culture of quick change a lot of the early cartoons are about metamorphosis more broadly um, and so that absurdity that surrealism um, I've written here this sort of absurd surreal treatment in an age of technology and this absence of, of human labour which obviously one of the things mm animation is about it's about the occlusion mm -hmm. of labor you don't see the process you mm -hmm. don't see the outcome of the process which is why definitions of animation are about what happens between the frames rather than what is visible on screen um, so and obviously machines this film machines the surreal, uh, the surrealism of machines the machines going wrong the role of a human within that so the logic of the cartoon it kind of got me thinking about the anarchy of a cartoon and the surrealism of, of something like Brazil. Could I even, I mean, as you're talking, I'm just sort of, when I watched it this time recently, I was thinking how much this feels like a film about cinema in the sense of process, in the sense of the machinery of cinema. 
and yeah, and yeah. I sort of was thinking, you know, uh, the expectations of the, the the love story, the you know, the heroic character, all these sort of things that, you know, it feels like almost a commentary on on cinema, and cinema's relationship with these things. I wonder, even if you could take it one step further and say it's it's sort of purposefully not animation because it is putting that stuff in the foreground and it's commenting on it rather than... Do you know what I mean? I, f- I feel like... I wonder if there's... Just as you were talking, I've slightly lost my thread, but as you were talking, I was sort of thinking, gosh, actually, it, it's sort of showing all the stuff because, for me, it feels like a film about fiction. It doesn't surprise me there's no traditional animation in it. It feels very mater- like material and very... In a film that's about yeah. technology and... Uh, interiors and the threat of technology and that sort of futuristic dystopian quality there's something that is very t- tangible like it seems but it very feels, it feels more, it feels sort of more profound than that to me the sense of rem- of our humanity as being disconnected from those things so whilst this yes is a film about te- technology and you could you know society blah 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 it, the story is about the people and, you know, about someone who is desperate to have this kind of purely fantastical experience of falling in love and being a hero and being a superhero and flying and all these sort of things that cinema sort of suggests heroes can do and should do and all these sort of things. And so by um, Lowry's kind of intentions being so cinematic but sort of put butt to butt up against with this kind of horrific reality which is all about process and not about escape do you know what I mean it's like he's there's something about the the like space in between process. I like that a film it about is, process it is and it's sort yeah. of, if you're talking about the space between the frames it sort of feels like the, the, the story we've got in our heads which isn't on the screen is that is the space between the mecha- mechanics and the process of living and the the vision and process of flying. You know what I mean? There's a, you know, it, it seems banal to say on this podcast that this is a film about fantasy, but but I want to say that because actually this is a film that has a, you know, this is a fantasy world, is a dystopia, and there's a certain level of imagination that the filmmakers had to all go through and we are, go, we are going through as an audience to make that sort of speculative leap. But then, of course, the film then narrativizing it is about Lowry's fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's quite a romantic in the sort of, you know, traditional sense of the term tone to this in that it's about the celebration of, you know, the gaps between process and regiment and reality and and order and all the things and a celebration of expression and desire and mm. all the sort of things that make us make us human but um but we don't uh, but that feels like the, mm-hmm. the the sort of thesis that he's saying isn't yeah. it so these are the things that make us human dreaming is the thing that makes us human and i found it sort of really interesting thinking about uh the logic by which we we kind of enter into these sequences is when larry falls asleep but larry falls asleep you know all the time just just to the yeah. drop of a hat but it's completely believable because he's in this airtight kind of universe where you feel like they probably can't breathe and they're probably you know what i mean yeah. so i kind of i buy into that logic and and but yes it's sorry it is it is about fantasy i i watched big recently um, for something and it occurred to me that one of the, the things big is about is it's about play and it's about cinema the fact that cinema is play, you know, and it's kind of reminding us as adults to to play, right? And and sort of and so, but it's in the form of the film. So the 
the Zoltar, I'm presuming you yeah, know the yeah, film, yeah. Zoltar's, you know, machine is never plugged in, there's never any question, we never sort of interrogate that at all because it's saying it doesn't matter, you don't get hung up on that. That is, that's the way to kill play sure. and, and sort of embrace in this. And in the same way, I feel like this is a film where it kind of says, okay, I'm going to give you lots of different routes to fantasy and I'm going to put them there, but but you have to... This is what cinema is about. It is about this this desire to fly and this desire to experience things which aren't real. But that very desire makes us human. It, it, it's, yeah, except, I don't know, I, I wonder how there's a certain ambivalence to how it represents the imagination. Mm-hmm. In the, well, it, it, it comes down to the ending and why not get to the ending of the movie in 10 minutes um, because <laughs> we'll work our way back to the beginning at some point. Um, but... Uh, how you're supposed to read the ending because I think there are two ways of reading it and one is obviously this sort of um, ironic um, flattening moment where you sort of realise the real sort of cruelty or endlessness of the system whereby this sort of um, you know hope that's been throughout the film um, is extinguished but then at the same time um, the character is is blissful at the end of the movie because yeah. they've stepped away from the cruel harsh reality that they were in at the beginning. The film, the Lowry is happier at the end than he yeah. is at the beginning. Um, so how do we read that ending? Do we re- read it as miserableist, as pessimistic, or do we read it as a, as a final celebration of fantasy over reality? Yeah, of mm, imagination mm. over over the material. Because um, I, I mean, or probably I, somewhere in between the two. Is the I can't. I can't yeah. kind of celebrate the idea that. No. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? The disconnection with any reality is the only way to be uh-huh. happy. You know. As much as as it feels truthful, in, in you which know, case so, you have to complicate the reading that this is a movie about the triumph of the imagine, you know, a celebration of hope. Because actually, oh, it's his imagination that. Okay. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's not about the triumph, but I think it's it's about. I just think it's about our desire for escape, sure. right? And I think that that is true of the Time Bandits as well, and Fisher King, and uh-huh. everywhere where where ordinary life is lifted by escape into fantasy. I think that's a kind of Gilliam theme, right? Sure. So, um, but. No, I can't. Wasn't there a version of the film? I seem to remember this conversation where they, they don't go back to the thing where they just end in the. Well, it's just a happy ending. In the happy ending, was that ever? Was that my imagination that that ever happened? I don't know off the top of my head, so I'll riff while Chris definitely doesn't just Google it. Right I am. Now. I I definitely am um, not looking this up. Yeah. And reading it off of yes, there's there's a lot of stuff around the final cut of the film uh, and the happy ending or the 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 re-edit of the film to give it a happy ending and its relationship to, to test screenings and things like this. And it seems like, um, yeah, there is uh, there is a lot written about Gilliam's role in trying to... Um, used to uh, yeah, so the film initially tested poorly um, and therefore it was then re-edited with the happy with ending, happy i.e. Ending. without that sort of And was it released? Do you know if that um, was released? Which seemed it? to score high. I don't know, it seems to only have been done sort of internally, but I'd have to do a bit more research, but it seems okay. like there probably is another version of the film mm. without that coda at the end that but is that, that is that people have did seen. Did they make it and it's... it's yeah, that is somewhere... Yeah. Um, but potentially not, you know, about this, about, you know, there's lots of behind-the-scenes stuff about the, the tussle of the studio, right? But um, mm. not yeah. Gilliam's version. So they released a. Well, it's yes. it. They, they uh, prompted Universal to finally agree to release a modified 132-minute version supervised by Gilliam. So there seems to be. Right. I, it seems there seems to be a conflict. But again, that you know, if you erase that ending sequence, one potentially the film's title doesn't make as much sense as it would. Oh, Brazilian. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, this, this is interesting. As you say, he looks very. He, he does look happy. Um, 
and he his dream was prompted by a visual effect of Mate painting. Sorry, just had to get that in there. Sure. I thought, oh, the pleasure he's he's gone into an animated yeah, yeah. world. Exactly. Uh, and and actually, that idea of being a, you know a fictional world of characters dreaming within a fictional world mm. and things like this. Um, but I suppose with all narratives of escapism and things like this, the focus either is on what you've escaped from as and what you escape into. And actually, so the point that actually I hope that you made earlier about escaping the ordinary world to, to fantasise, uh, it's funny because the ordinary world isn't really that ordinary anyway. Right. So there is a yes. really interesting, okay, so what's more what's more ordinary actually are, his, are Sam's fantasies at the end, which appear very sort of rural and oh yeah okay I, I can latch onto this so it's a really weird I don't know what quite what I'm saying or where I'm going with this but that idea of escapism and how we're supposed all because of the ending sequence what what I, appears more conventional or yeah I like the idea that you oh sorry that was me that you sorry. have to um that it is ordinary I think I think that's that is the kind of point of the artist is to say, this is how I see the world. This is what I think is life is like, and I'm going to show you that. And, you know, and so sort of, I think this, this sort of horror of, of that universe, you know, Gilliam said, well, the, what no one realised at the time was that is what people were living. And, it, you know, it feels even yeah. more kind of real now, this kind of idea of some terrible mistake and the people come in and just finish someone off and take them off and you know what I mean in the Donald Trump's America there's certainly a sense in which this is very real yeah. you know so I mean it's kind of I think in the kind of romantic notion I suppose of, of how we view things and true sense of romantic you know that it's creating art is creating showing us how you know influencing how we then see the world you know and I think you watch something like that and then you you start to think of the the lives we're living in those ways. Well, I wonder whether it's then because one of the things with about political caricature is the caricature itself. It's not detached from the real, but it's an exaggeration or an intensification rather than a dilution of the real. So mm. it's it's not that you'd look at a caricature and go, oh, that's entirely unrealistic. It's actually entirely rooted in realism because it mm. relies on a certain you know cultural consensus of realism to in order to make its political point and to, for us to understand its loaded loaded images uh, and so this film it, its normality is a caricature of everyday realism but as you say actually it's not it is exaggerated but it doesn't lose its familiarity so the processes and procedures that are a film about bureaucracy and a film about red tape if you think about um the uh i guess the conveyor belts the people working at workstations um the collecting a particular form from particular all of those things are exaggerated and so forth but they're caricatured in a way or they function in the same way as, as caricature insofar as it's not a it, you know it's a creative treatment of of the real which so doesn't gonna, make automatically make it fantasy or disconnected right 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 so i guess i'm going to ask you another technical uh, question what's the difference between caricature and surreal in this case then well, I suppose caricature is the process and surrealism becomes the outcome. So the, the, the outcome okay. of a caricature treatment of uh, you know, political cartooning, traditions in political cartooning, caricatures of Donald Trump that exaggerate certain elements of his persona, his physiognomy, his, um, uh, I guess, colour palette, black suit, red tie, uh, face, hair, all these sorts of things. Um, the outcome of that could be a repositioning of him in certain situations and the outcome is surrealism, 
or that there is a, the treatment of his caricature or the caricature of, of somebody um, results in a surrealist or an understanding of a surrealist treatment of it. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, there was a caricaturing of, of um, uh, technology or the role of technology, the, the position of human labor within certain kinds of processes. Um, and part of that caricature involved juxtapositions, involved absurdity and comedy. You know, the film's very funny in places and then tragic in others. Um, but then the outcome of that, you think, oh, actually, the, 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 the outcome of that treatment of plastic surgery as a process or the outcome of that mm -hmm. exaggerated treatment of the workstation becomes a surreal take on something. So I, it seemed to me that caricature or the caricaturing of, of the industry the outcome of that was, or the result of that, was a sort of surrealist, you know, or subversive reflection on it. I think some of the satire isn't just technology, though. It's also no. stuff like, um, well, the whole subplot involving sort of Larry's uh, mother and yeah. plastic surgery, which I feel like could have been, you know, written yesterday, and it would have been perhaps, yeah. you know, as poignant and relevant. Um, so there's the, there's also a sort of societal... I mean, I was, the word I wrote down was satire, yeah. um, and now we're going to have to dis distinguish between that and... And surrealism. I enjoy you doing that, are we, are, we, are, we gonna, <laughs> are we just going to define our terms for an hour? Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but certainly, it's, 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 I, think, I think there are two registers of fantasy, I guess, going on here. And one wants us to make a connection with uh, reality and see it as, a, I don't know, a riffing on, uh, an exaggeration of, uh, a satirism of which is the, the world of Brazil. And then, then there are these other moments of self-declared fantasy where we're supposed to um, see them as fabrications and use them in a slightly different way. And I'm still, the first one has a bite against sort of some societal features and dynamics and things going on in the 80s, but have been going on ever since. Um, and then the second one, I'm not quite sure what was necessary supposed to do with them because I think on one level it is definitely championing them and celebrating them. Certainly visually, they're sort of um, you know sumptuous and they're sort of you can you can eat them up with your eyes. These moments and it seems to be the film is sort of um, it comes to comes to life. Not that it's asleep, but it comes to life or, or is more most vibrant when those things are on screen. But then if you think about what they do narratively. Basically, they articulate a very obsessive male fantasy of the female form, um, and I'm not quite sure they bring our hero, for want of a better word, satisfaction or joy or or any or, or improve his situation in any way, shape or form. Mm. So I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do with those moments of fantasy because they're beautiful to look at, but I'm not sure they serve function maybe that's I don't know maybe that's good but it's hard it is hard I think I mean as I was sort of mentioned earlier the the idea that this is like cinema that this is a film about mm. cinema felt not just truthful in terms of this sort of question this narrative question around kind of fantasy and and you know the aesthetics but also about the process of making a film and the kind of you know, and we know that Gilliam's kind of been through this much of his life, they're sort of uh, trying to buy into the system being knocked from one person to another, from one studio to another, from one, you know, finding this sort of romantic notion of wanting to create and be, be heroic uh -huh. and, and actually being stuck in this kind of machine. And I think when, when I kind of watched it this time, thinking about that and thinking about the kind of post-Weinstein kind of... Mm stuff how it's really interesting when you look at um jill layton and uh, how she is defined you know she is this kind of rebel 
completely unfeminized kind of no makeup short hair very kind of ill-fitting large clothes you know um keeping under the radar staying away you know she is this sort of impossible creature and even with this commentary as i see it this kind of reading of this film as making films is so hard you know it's you have to fight the machine even within that our hero is this kind of wealthy connected (laughs) able-bodied white man you know and it's so it's kind of fascinating how um at a certain point I sort of sort of slightly lost patience with it this time when when they get to her flat their mum's flat and he says stay here I know how to save you and he's going to kill her, like, a, you know, legally on the paperwork. And I'm just like, that, of all things, you know, given that this is the narrative we're in where he is the hero, the most heroic thing he can do is kill the problematic version of his of his girlfriend. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And then the fantasy girlfriend can exist. And I'm sure that, I mean, that feel, I know, I know we all these things are intentional to some level, but but you can't help but look at that and go, God, that was a film made in the 80s. Yeah, you yeah, know sure. what I mean? Because it's like, whoa, nobody thought about that. The idea that, okay, the only way to be free as a woman is to be dead. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. it's a kind of, it's sort of very fascinating, uh, you know, once you start, as I do at the moment, I'm kind of obsessed with films that are about film because I think that's probably one thing that filmmakers feel they know you know as amongst other things and uh, for Gilliam certainly it feels sort of a theme through his life so I kind of thinking about that yeah this as uh, So Mayer says you know cinema is a rape machine and it's just this kind of massive machine that's just sucking up and you know he, he tries to stand up for the right thing and you know Bob Hoskins arrives and fills this flat with ice. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's, it's a really kind of hostile environment for somebody who is trying to be pure and good. And, yeah. Because I, I actually, I was, when you said about it being about cinema, I was thinking, okay, so is it, um, uh, is it the labour of it? Is it the only kind of distraction and, and illusion, or in this case, delusion? Mm-hmm. Um, the convincingness of images, which again, if he's sitting there, he's sitting down at the climax of the movie, convinced by an image on a, on the wall or something and he's just in it and it's just and so I was thinking about that but it seems to be more like yeah the labour of uh, and the, the yeah I mean I think it works on both within. levels yeah. I mean that's why I think it's so interesting because it's sort of you know it is that it, yeah I mean but you know and, 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 and reading here and I'm, you know, I'm sure we know that the, the original title was 1984 and a half both as a gesture to 1984 and as a gesture to Fellini, which is obviously a film about mm. um, about about filmmaking. Um, I was also thinking about the role of satire, and I was just look, thinking about it now. So caricature, exaggeration of the process, and the purpose becomes satire, or the purpose right, okay. becomes... Because if we think of, well, you said about the 1980s context, satire with its particular relationship to the political, i.e. the expo- exposure, critique, um, and topical. Um, and so I'd have to do a bit more about mm. what was happening in the world in mm. the early 80s, 85 in particular, um, perhaps a bit more of context around the, around the film. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think there's lo- lots to say, and it seems to be made in terms of, of that. It's rife for interpretation, or the film certainly makes available certain moments. Well, a lot of its narrative is made available to us as a way of reading things metaphorically or to think about, oh, that is an extreme or exaggerated version of something or a symbol of how one normally would do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems seems very subversive in, in that way. Also, you're interested in this, um, it's a film about cinema, 
um, and where this comes in Gilliam's career as a director, mm. and I might have misremembered this, but it's not. It's one of his earlier ones, right? He's, mm-hmm. He did Jabber, Jabberwocky was his first, or I probably misremembered that, which was very much a sort of Python-esque yep. Yep. ensemble piece. And then this is one of his first sort of stepping away from his role on Python, his role as an animator, and becoming a writer-director. Um, and you use the word machine quite a lot to describe <laughs> cinema. Yeah. Uh, and this is a very mechanical, analogue mm-hmm. movie. It's mm-hmm. our metropolis. So yeah. I just yeah. wondered if, we, if there's anything to say about his reclaiming of the machine, the machinery of cinema, as him announcing, you know, partly is stepping away from his more, you know, his persona at the time as an animator who, you know, that, that animator that worked on Python. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he's not an animator in this film. He is a, a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, in the proper, you know, film going through the the wheels kind of yeah, sense yeah. of the word. I mean, I um, suppose the, the the kind of the ultimate, the uh, the consequence of all this torture is the blissful escape into a dream. You yeah. know, so maybe that's maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe the maybe the unknown positive, negative, whatever conclusion where he's in the bliss state. You know, it, it was impossible unless you fight the machine. Um, so, you know, maybe he is connecting the two. Yeah, it's, maybe. It's, isn't there that famous quote from Gilliam that's something like, uh, probably it's, this is probably hypocritical, but it's something like um, making a film is having a dream and then watching that dream be brutally destroyed by reality day by day on set or some, something like that. <laughs> there we that. go. There, there we can, we can yeah. finish. The, the <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is what happens, right? Yeah, yeah, it has a dream and it's brutally destroyed by reality. Um so yeah, okay. So it's about. Process. But I think this is as you as you know as you say it is quite early on, and and I think you know post Don Quixote, kind of the Don Quixote lost years, you know whether he would even be able to bring himself to make this movie. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Because at least he does end up in 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 bliss. You know um, that there's a there's a more negative version of this film, I guess, where he's actually awake at the end. You know where Lowry is. Were woken from the dream. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, that's even worse. Isn't you it? Know? Yeah. Um, yeah, you've woken up and, and realised it's yeah. what you've just seen. It's just a dream. Or maybe, maybe that's the kind of, or maybe you just can't make anything. I don't know. It's it's a. Well, it, it seems to be an interesting paradox. I don't know what you think about this as a filmmaker, but um, it, you know, Gilliam is one of his personas. Gilliam is that he finds it really hard to make movies. He always struggles behind the scenes making the movie. Every movie is a war. If they ever get made at all. If they ever get made at all. That's like every movie has that story behind it. So I just, you know, as as an outsider, you're just like, well, why why would you still make them if they do this to you every single time, you know? Um, I think I probably know the answer, but I won't say it. But like, you know, do you you have that relationship to your work? Oh my um, God, it took me eight years to get my first feature made. 10 years, you know, I'm three years down the line. I still haven't got the next one. Yeah. going yet you know I've got well they're all sitting there you know it's 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 really hard it's so hard and that's why even though you say it was his you know early movie he still would have experienced that you know and and whilst I one of the things when I watched this movie I was just like there you just you wouldn't be able to make this now because of the budget you just would not be given this much money to make this piece of art because it is it's like every detail from the the cross tape over the little dog's bottom to the, you know, the, the every there's not a moment missed. Um, there's the the hands typing, you know, it's just it's so expensive this <laughs> film watching it, and it just kind of blows my mind. Okay, so this is one of those moments where we pause the podcast um, and stop talking as we were then, yes. and start talking live. Well, not live, but 
we're live. Always, we're always live yeah. and not live. This is it's hard uh, to record in advance of yeah. the moment that you're recording. Sure, this isn't a live stream. No, so that's um, not what we've paused the podcast to talk to you about. No, though. we have paused the podcast to talk to you, um, listeners uh, and potential contributors, actually, um, about the blog element of the website. So if you visit uh, fantasy-animation.org, you'll see that we run a, a weekly blog. So the blog itself uh, pulls in different voices from lots of, of different places, whether you're an animator, creative practitioner, academic, uh, whether you've been to a film festival, an academic conference, uh, whether you are, uh, you know, been to the cinema, seen an uh, animated fantasy television program. Uh, we'd uh, love it could to be an animator who's just produced a new work yes. and wants to talk about it, reflect on it um, creatively. It could, it could be, be um, someone who's trying to get into film journalism, who wants to have a go at writing a review. Um, you could just be a fan and love a particular uh, uh, subject matter and you'd always want to talk about it. Yeah, we've had a lot of people kind of get in contact via the website. Um, we have a little comments function, so if you send a little message to us um, with your potential idea, then we'll have a yeah. conversation about commissioning in it. There's a tab, isn't there, at the top that says something like contact us yes. and, and submit form. Click so you that. can contact us. Uh, and also you can follow us on social media, so give us an at on Facebook, send us a message. Um, so give us an at on Twitter or send us a message on Facebook uh, and we'll get in touch. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it would be great to, to kind of publish some of the new work that's being done or, or um, hear from people that perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to publish elsewhere, um, get in touch. Please do. Otherwise, we'll just get back to the show. Let's. So if you've got that kind of vision and you're sort of relentless in that vision, then it's it's incredibly hard. I mean, Python gave him the, the kind of, I guess, the leaping off point, you know, to say this is the humour, this is the surrealist point of view, this is the, the kind of world we know there's an audience for this, you know, come on board. Um, and, you know, I don't know enough about fantasy, but I sort of feel like it exists in this world in cinema where maybe there isn't as much fantasy being made as there is in different parts of cinema history. I, don't, I have no idea. What I'm well, there's less, there's less and there's more, and I, I think there's less of these kind of movies being right. made, but, you know, arguably every movie that's made over... A Eight hundred million dollars of the past twenty years has been a fantasy, right? But that, so, but yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean. But like at this point in the eighties, there you know there mm, weren't kind yeah. of you know that so that wasn't the thing. We didn't have the same kind of mm-hmm. geek culture, you know, sort of as uh, the geeks hadn't won yet. They hadn't taken over. They the hadn't world taken yet, over no, the world. Yeah. So it was kind of that sort of extraordinary thing. But um, you know, when I watched this, one of the things I felt really deeply sad at is thinking about some of the films that I have tried to make with the same kind of attention to every moment and inventiveness of every moment and have not been able to make. And now I'm at the point when I write something, like I could never write a movie, like, I mean, I could never write a movie like Brazil. But you know, I censor myself constantly because it is so hard to get movies made and it is so hard to get movies with that kind of budget. And I just sort of, you know, and because movies aren't making money at the moment, you know, it's just sort of almost impossible. And so it's, it's become this thing. I was, it, it felt really sad watching that film because I thought, God, <sighs> you know, this is one of the reasons I make films. Yeah. And yet I, I would never write a sequence like that because I would know that it just it would have to go, you know. And, and it kind of makes me really sad because one of the things I love about cinema is spectacle and, you know, this sort of surreal kind of inventiveness of creating a universe that's, you know, other, but yet this universe, you know, and and it sort of feels impossible now. So it's sort of, yeah, I feel like it's a really sad film. It's a really poignant film and it's, it's sort of extraordinary that it exists and, but it's also devastating that it exists because it sort of feels like the apex of something to me, of, of kind of cinema. Like, I don't think we're gonna make movies 
like that again. I don't think we're, I think the only movies that get made with that much money are superhero movies now. And I can't see that changing for a long time, if ever. You know, so it's sort of, it sort of feels like this very lost art, you know, this sort of, this time. And and, uh, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to the, the, the sort of work of fantasists? And, you know, I mean, I'm writing a book at the moment because it's the only way I can, you know, get, tell the story I want to tell because it's just too expensive. You know what I mean? It's sort yeah. of it's sort of devastating to, yeah. There's loads I want to riff on with this because, I mean, one of the synonyms of fantasy we trade on this podcast is, is I guess, creativity and we're just in the fantasy of the creative process mm. and it, both the film but actually what you're saying there about your process and I think perhaps I'm more interested in that is um, you have a fantasy, for want of a better word, of how your movie could be. Um, and the fantasy, because it's in your head, both doesn't cost anything mm. and also does not need approval of financiers, audience, demographics, all the sort of indus- industrial concerns that you might have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that fantasy is slowly censored by yourself, as you yeah. just said there, by the world as it responds to the fantasy. And you get to a point where the fantasy sort of expresses itself as a fart or a squeaky fart rather than a sort of, uh, nope, not doing that analogy. Uh, but yeah, um, um, but it, it announces itself in a, in a way that's sort of unrecognisable from what it was at the beginning. Mm. And part of that is the medium you're working in because it's so invested in labour, the real world, industry, technology, all this kind of stuff. And it's not a coincidence that, um, you know, no one worries about who invented what Microsoft Word software so they could write novels quicker. Right, when we right. write, when we write about the history of fantasy writing. No one worries about when different types of pens were invented, but we worry about when stop motion was created or when mm. uh, CGI was invented, all this kind of stuff. And special effects is foregrounded within the study of fantasy cinema um, because it has to negotiate with the real world and has to negotiate with technology. Yeah, and I, but I would say to that that I think, you know, that the that's the challenge of, of kind of cinema. Mm. One of the challenges is that you have to train your fantasies to be deliverable. You know what I mean? So you have to know what can be done and then create the fantasy within it. So I think that's that's why people like Jonathan Glazer, people who are working kind of with uh, great new technology, special effects in commercials and places where they've got those tools can actually infiltrate those those realities of how you make these things happen can infiltrate their ideas and they can start to create better ideas right Mm. so it becomes then you know more challenging for people who aren't engaged at that level do you see what I mean and and sort of so you it's one of those harder things to kind of keep fighting and keep thinking okay but you also don't want the technology to already exist because then someone else is going to think of it. So there's also that challenge of like, okay, I've got this idea and it's this great idea and I'm going to tell you how we're going to do it. And that is also, I think, part of the the job, the, the delight of being a filmmaker is that you kind of go, oh, you know, I just had this great idea and I know how we can do it. We can pull it off and it's going to look amazing and it's cheap and it's easy and we can, you know what I mean? It's uh-huh. like that inventiveness is always going to be there. But yeah, so it's that marrying of the two things. And it's it's amazing how many times I read a script and I'm like, I know exactly what this person's trying to do. It's impossible to deliver or it just won't land. You know, it won't, it won't 
what you think is going to be on screen is not what you've written. Do you know what I mean? And you can't deliver that. It's not going to hit an audience in the way you want it to because this is something that belongs in a book or this is something that belongs in a play. You're not thinking about cinema when you're when you're writing this scene. Um, and so you have to kind of... It's the Ozu thing. You know, you just keep learning all the time. My relationship with story and cinema changes kind of all the time as I kind of understand more profoundly what I think... It means for something to be cinematic. So it's kind of that that constant um, self-education, inventiveness, and then trying not to censor yourself. But as I said, you know, the machine is there, and, and that machine has been battering. You know, it's it's very, very damaging, and you do, I do self-censor all the time, you know, and there feels like there is this need for permission to make films, you know, which is kind of part of the the thing of Brazil you know it's yeah. like you I need the slip I need the right slip I need this these people to sign it and I need those people to sign it and then you know and that's how films get made and so it's very permissible and you know it's I think it's so interesting that that becomes that's sort of becoming such an enormous question around who are the people who are allowed to make these films at the moment like who are the people who feel like they need to ask for permission versus who are the people who are just doing it and the, the sort of false characteristics that sort of get ascribed to those different populations, like, well, men just go out and do it, or, or you know, women feel like they need to ask for permission, or, you know, do you know what I mean? Those kind of weird things that are coming into play, you know, this is why we don't have more working class auteurs, because they, you know, suffer from imposter syndrome, is this sort of new conversation that's going on at the moment. And, it, you know, it's really interesting, but it shows also how absolutely crucial that magic thing that filmmakers have to have that perseverance that inventiveness that selling themselves that whatever it is that thing where you walk into a room and you're like I'm a leader give me a hundred million dollars I can tell a story that's going to captivate the world you know and and it's sort of incrementally who has that who gets to have it and why does that get eaten away all the time you know from certain people and not from other people and it's it's there's no rhyme or reason to it, you know? And I don't know. So I feel like I've pulled us all the way down. No, I was going like, to say, well, in the context of something like the narrative of of Brazil, uh, it, presumably Sam is this is the creative voice. So Sam is the c- creative or who, who, the person who is trying to navigate all of these processes and procedures as well as people that are... Some people are cooperative with him and mm-hmm. some people refuse to cooperate and, and all these sorts of things. So he's the sort of... You know, I don't want to say the surrogate director, but there's right, a certain. Right, if we're telling that story, you know, there's yeah. a certain certain element, and so I wonder then his the role of his daydreams and his fantasies within that narrative, and you you said right at the start that his ability to fall asleep really quickly. So, um, it, and and going back to the point about the 1980s fantasy and the role of fantasy, this seems a fantasy less about. I, my my feeling is that fantasy worlds, Lord of the Rings, etc., are, are about the world that that the film takes place in. This one seems to be a fantasy about the world that people normally have to escape from to go and watch those mm. fantasy movies. And it becomes a fantasy about that world. Um, and so given this film analogy, given this, uh, or, or the, the an- analogy of cinema, this is a film about cinema, about creativity, and the role of the human in a process that is you know, mechanical and so forth, uh, does that add extra purchase onto his fantasies or his dreams that feel a lot more like 
know, the film is science fiction, but his fantasies are often romantic comedies or they're <laughs> often romantic dramas or something like this. It, it feels like he dreams in genres. He lives in a film noir science fiction sort of meld. Um, he's dressed a lot like a private eye um, and he's sort of very much a detective in lots of ways and trying to work out and get clues and figure things out and so forth. Um, but he seems to dream in a, in a soft focus and so I just wondered what the role of these fantasies are within this narrative of creativity and, and industry and, and labour and things like this. I, I have a theory now. I didn't 20 minutes ago, but I have a theory <laughs> now, so I bet it's good. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is uh, one of the things about filmmaking I hadn't struck me until we had this conversation was that if, you, if, you, if you're an author and you have a fantasy, for want of a better word, um, you need a pen and you need a piece of paper and then the fantasy can be enacted into the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. All right, people might not read the thing if you don't get it published by some sort of you know, power structure existing thing like that, but the thing can exist as an object that can be shared. But you don't have that luxury with film. No. Um, even you know, with the celebration of digital technology, democratizing all that sort of stuff, if you have a, a you know, you have to make a film, you need, you need the world to cooperate Mm -hmm. with you a little bit um, not a lot but a little bit um, and if you're faced with an uncooperative world which Lowry is in this um, you cannot bring that fantasy to life and thus it remains um, a vacuous fantasy because it doesn't it doesn't you know fa fantasy provides no satisfaction if we know it's just a fantasy but as a psychological process you know um, we talked about play object relation theorists like Winnicott talk about this all the time about play sort of physicalizing and bringing into life and that's where the satisfaction is so in as long as Lowry's fantasies allow him to enact things in the world they have purchase and they have value to the story, to him as a character, to us as a viewer. And it's the, the, the sadness of that final shot is that finally we have a fantasy that will never be enacted. Mm. We have a fantasy that means nothing because it can't come into the world. Um, and that might speak to some of the sort of um, dissatisfaction about mm. the pro you know, it, that feeling that you're describing so eloquently of, of having a, fant a cinematic fantasy as a filmmaker that at one point you have, you you go it's not come it's not going to come to life it's not going to come to life it's it's I'm just Lowry in the chair yeah <laughs> um, and there's loads of things keep it light Alex yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah absolutely well who knew We're Brazil just... would be this, uh, this uh, <laughs> therapy this is therapy <laughs> yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. it We're just well, Lowry in a chair <laughs> I did I I feel like that's the sadness of the end it's that. All the others have a chance of coming to life in some way, shape, or form. Although, well, that's interesting because the only that one at the end is the only one that is is real. The others are, you know, completely unreal. Him sure. with wings, the the cage, those baby-headed monsters. You know, they're very much. Um, but it's interesting that yeah, you, we see them as as real to him in the story, and they're the ones that propel his action. They they motivate him. They kind of engage him, and he can see where they connect with his real life. You know, yeah. they're, they're kind of, when he starts to see um, Tuttle's, no, Buttle's widow, you know, with the thing of it, you know, and you can kind of start to kind of, um, you know, there is that sense that we understand how these nightmares and visions have been created. They have been created from his real life. Yeah, that's you know? actually interesting. So, the of, so lucid dreaming, a lot of his fantasies that he can connect up or we as spectators can connect up, oh the reason he's fantasizing or dreaming about that is because this happened earlier on or that character 
I wonder where his fantasy in the final sequence, which is very different, you know, it, well, it's different from other fantasies in the film uh, because it's grounded in a certain sense of realism, but equally it's different from the rest of the movie because it is like daytime, outside, rolling hills, landscapes. Uh, and, and this is a, very much a film of interiors and the claustrophobia of, of interiors. Um, it's interesting, I wonder where he had access, where, where, what was it in the world of the film, hypothetically, that got him dreaming and thinking about that in that way? Well, it's, it's the continuation of their escape, isn't it? So actually what's interesting, and it's sort of, I'm suddenly thinking about this, is, is the reliable relator kind of question here, uh, narrator, not relator, um, because actually, you know, she, um, Jill, is always long-haired and kind of blousey, you know, wafty um, and sexy, right, in the things. But in this, it's sort of she's in her tough rebel clothes, they're escaping together. So it's sort of it's, it's the fantasy as the real narrative. So they've swapped places, you know. And so actually I guess you could even say, working back from that, is that whole story is Jill just a fantasy the whole way through did this did that dream that ends up with him in the greenlands start when he first saw you yeah. know when he saw her at uh, buttles house you know when he looks up through the ceiling and he sees her for the first time is that is that whole is that whole narrative actually a dream and is the reality that he is just stuck do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's the like whole a, film is... Yeah, so I mean, arguably, right? it didn't begin with the lobotomy right? scene. It didn't begin in that way. It began a lot earlier because she's always positioned as a figure of... She's this, yeah. Uncertainty. This, exactly. So is... Because the first time he sees her, he recognises her from his dream. So is arguably, has he conjured her up all the way, you know, is the whole thing actually just... Well, given, I suppose given that the film is also about appearances, if you think about plastic surgery and, the, and mm. how the mother has plastic surgery... To, cause it, and it is to look like, or she ultimately ends up looking like She looks Jill. like Jill, yeah. So you get an unreliability in there that if it's a film about contorting appearances and, and, and so forth, I, yeah. So suddenly the two realities are yeah. actually coming mm. together in that final sequence post-bomb, as it were. Yeah. After that final bomb, that's when everything starts to kind of cross over and we start to, you know, the things from what have been definitely fast-asleep dream stuff is appearing in the real world and vice versa. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I only have a couple. I know we're, we're journeying towards the end, but I'm I'm interested one in the cast because obviously the cast is fantastic. But also, the style of the film more broadly, um, given that I feel a lot of the film feels very close up and very. Again, it's that issue of proximity and claustrophobia, and there's lots of low angles of, of that seem to be from his perspective, looking up at figures of authority or certainly authority in relation to him. Um, and actually, it's the end that we only get. We start to get these long kind of shots, and and actually, actually, so given that it's a film very much of interiors that, and you gestured towards a little bit a little bit earlier, but um, in terms of the film's influence on your own work, is there is there a because it seems not I wouldn't say diametrically opposed to <laughs> to, to your to your work um, if we think about the leveling, but also I guess the, the role of landscape, the role of space. It, what, I mean, is there something? I, I'm not going to no, tell I, I think, you the influence of the film on your own work, but is there? Was there also something within the movie that you've thought about, or, or you know, has has could be mapped onto your work? 
I think I think that's um, I think it would be stretching it to, to <laughs> connect the two. But I think that for sure, this sense of where do I belong and what is home uh, is certainly something that is feels really rooted in Brazil. Yeah. Um, and that you know he's you know where does he belong? Doesn't belong in his mother's house. He's got this flat that he's being chucked out of. You know, and that's something which I'm always trying to you know have my films always seem to kind of uh, end up looking at is what is this notion of home and mm. and what does it mean to be at home and and is it the buildings is it the the history of them is it the you know the people within them what is it that makes us feel at home and how do we connect so I think that's for sure I mean I think um, some of my short films are probably much more related you know and and I think the first feature I really wanted to make and I'm now writing as a book um, was far more kind of surreal and in that kind of uh, sort of pushed absurd um, realities where I'm kind of enjoying the kind of hysteria of groups of people and the kind of um, sense that you're the the straight man among the the madness you know Um, and I think that is something which I I love and just these kind of these uh, circumstantial kind of madnesses that that people have kind of come up with and you know certainly in Morning Echo where you've got a family who are pretending it's Christmas who are pretending it's not Christmas because they pretended it was Christmas and you know this sort of this sort of idea that decisions we make that we must stick to in order to maintain some sense of order in our lives you know I think that's something which feels really true to me so I um, I you know I, I would love to have more absurd and abstract and surreal elements always and I think that was the moment when when I went to do a rewrite on the leveling and uh, came up with the hair swimming um, that was something that was really suddenly made it a film for me rather than you know drama TV whatever because I suddenly the metaphors were always there these kind of metaphors of dredging dredging the water dredging the the, the rivers and the um the gills to uh, to clear them out so that the water could run, and understand sort of that feeling like this metaphor of the of the family that don't talk to each other. Um, but farmer, I t- had this amazing conversation with a farmer who told me about um, the night of the floods when he was evacuating his farm and the cattle with water up to their chest and the f- tractors were you know spluttering and drowning as it were, and he wanted to save a hare and he had found there was a hare sitting on the wall and he wanted to take the hare and put it in the and he thought this is ridiculous I can't save the hare you know I've got 800 cattle I have to get out of here I've got my family I've got you know we all need to go um but that nevertheless that kind of stayed with me so much and the same guy talked about you know in the during the floods because all the mice because everything was drowned that the mice were scurrying along the tops of the hedges and uh, owls falling out of the sky um, because they were starving because there were you know so little under so little so few mice and things and so those were images that were in the script um, for a long time <laughs> and uh, that I wanted to you know be there because it felt really important to me this sort of question of you know what 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 nature what's going on with the nature and how that feels around this question of loss which is what the leveling is obviously about but um that so the sequence with the hair was actually written as one sequence and it was all it was a, the, sort of the opening 2 minutes of the film um and 
God, my God, it was hard to shoot, you know, on the budget we had. But um, so in the end, it worked better when we chopped it up. And what we felt as well is it didn't have any context. It just didn't, you didn't know what it meant. You know what I mean? It was just, and then you forgot it and it was kind of wasted. Whereas I think once you start to kind of have questions about, you know, is Harry the hair, is Clover the hair? You know, what, what does it mean? Um, it suddenly became much more powerful. And what we had was we had all this footage. So talking about the machine and creating the, the kind of, you know, trying to replicate your, your fantasies that are in your head on the set, as it were, you also have this opportunity to create magic that that wasn't planned, you know, if you're, depending on what kind of film you're making, obviously, and you're this kind of low budget. So the opening stuff with the fire, that was just, we were waiting for the coals. The coals were all scripted, the hot coals they run on. And we were waiting for them all to heat up. And so I had these guys and we had the fire breathers. And so we just started running around. Nanu was like, let's get some of that. It looks amazing when they blow the fire. So we started just shooting all this sort of stuff. And it stood in for the kind of, you know, the night of the party, which actually in the first draft of the script, the first act was the party. And then it kind of went. And so suddenly when we put it together, it just felt like, actually, I kind of want to see what happened that night, you know, Mm. or at least a version of it. So I think, you know, as someone who's sort of really aware of the the relationship between process and content, you know, process and output, um, I think this, yeah, this is a diametric opposite in that, but I'm sure, I've no doubt that there would have been amazing surprises, nevertheless, on a film like Brazil when they were shooting it, because you always have that magical element of what do people do in that situation? What is, you know, how do they use a prop? How do they, you know, how do they actually deliver that? How does the light fall, you know, when you when you sort of, um, I suspect, I suspect they had it, but for, but for us, for the leveling, for a low, low budget stuff, it's, you, you kind of have to create an environment where you are, um, you, you're creating opportunities for the magic and then capturing it. So it's like, it's chaos, really. It's the idea of creating chaos, creating chaos that you can capture. And so that's, you know, that's terrifying and you can't put that in a budget. And, you know, so that's the sort of step where you have to bring your fantasy to real life of, I guess, the fantasy of the director as God of, I'm going to create chaos now, yeah. you know, in whatever way it works. I can't even remember no, where we started, no, but I'm sorry. Well, I just, can, can yeah, I go on? I, just because... Um, I didn't think Gillian when I first saw the leveling either. But obviously, <laughs> obviously watching it, I um, your decision to do that, at least I don't know for me as a viewer, creates this kind. Uh, there's an opportunity to read the hair sequence as mm. a recurrent dream. Yeah. Um, and it creates the question for me at least of whose dream is this a dream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whose dream is it? Yeah. Is this what happened or is this a nightmare of what mm. might have happened? Mm, um, so there is, to me, an interweaving of. Dream sequences. There we go. We found um, the leg. Well, I, it certainly creates that haunt. You know, a lot of your, the reviews, I read quite a few reviews, and a lot of them gesture towards there being something beyond yeah, realism yeah. going yeah. on. I can see the temptation to review everything. Oh, you just got, you used the word realistic a, a, a minute ago, but I was wondering yeah. whether how much you embraced that term, because there just seems to be a temptation to describe every sort of new, interesting British indie I mean, I really, shot I'm not, I don't, sing realism. Yeah, Here we go. yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. mean, I, do, I certainly... <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that film was made kind of in a realist way, but I'm, I, it's not my favoured kind of... I mean, I hope, 
I hope well, there's more, more. What, but but I, I you but know, I think that's partly because I sort of certainly with the leveling, I felt much more that the people I was looking at the cinema I was looking at was French and and kind of the sort of French cinema of the sort of bourgeoisie and the and the you know and the um, the failing bourgeoisie and the, and the kind of cinema of rural life, which I feel like France has a much richer kind of seam of, um, and that was something that was you know. Uh, felt more important so I was kind of slightly I'm like yeah, well, I don't know if it's a realist film but I guess it's, it is it's but kind of gothic it's kind of you yeah. know, oh, I don't know you, I, I, you know I see tones of that and obviously a lot of other reviews yeah. did as well so. I just don't watch that kind of those films so that's no, why I think yeah, I was kind yeah. of like oh okay I guess it's a folk horror I don't know yeah. Not really my thing, but um, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, making a film is a weird thing. It's just a weird thing. You don't know what you're doing. I mean, we're sitting here ascribing all these kind of intentions to Gilliam, but I mean, <laughs> you know, who knows? Or we won't have a career. <laughs> yeah, we sorry, need, we need sorry. To ignore intention, or we're screwed. Yeah. Um, no, I just, um, I just wanted to, to again, I guess, as a as a final point, yeah. and it's an, an appropriate to begin or to end with the beginning of the of Brazil because it goes back to your point about I guess the leveling and 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 belonging and home and family and Clover's return and all these sorts of the film of it, Brazil doesn't give us any sense of belonging because it doesn't. I think it begins with. I made a note. It begins with somewhere in the twentieth century. So it's quite vague, and there's not an establishing shot, and then it doesn't. Getting doesn't break down the space. Mm. So our geography is immediately. Or, or the film seems kind of untethered from a particular space. And as you said, there are lots of locations in the film. Um, so uh, Sam can't be at home because he's being moved out. And I don't quite understand the geography of where he works. Or And so, yeah, it seems quite appropriate that Brazil should begin, as we end this podcast, with somewhere in the 20th century because that sense of, la- of that lack of fixity... Mm-hmm. Is, is again a counterpoint I guess to the end of the movie where he's remained seated and quite content but often in his mind he's travelling and, and escaping and moving but actually he's not and it's only within his and it goes back to your point about him flying he seems to move and be free within these fantasies where actually everything is enclosed and there is there's a real and certainly as a spectator it is a hard watch I think Brazil and it, I'll have to watch it again and to sort of break down the space I don't think you could draw a map of the locations and it's not coherent, but I think that's part of it's it. It's intentional, I would think. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't give you that establishing shot that the film can then break down and ascribe, okay, so that location works there and leads on to here. Uh, and you have characters, so Ian Richardson's character, Mr. Warren, who walk, who seems to just be perpetually walking between mm. locations and corridors. And, um, yeah, and I think it's, yeah, in terms of spatial, uh, this kind of film's... Um, in terms of our information retrieval, it is very difficult because of the organisation of space. Um, <laughs> and that's what I'm going to sound like. Okay. I, I, yeah. Um, do we have any final thoughts? No, I, I, on I'm. Brazil? No, I mean, it's a, it's a, a, a hard watch. I'd like to rewatch Wally now and see what the <laughs> kind of connection is between yeah, the two. Next podcast, you just done this <laughs> there we go. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah. Hope. Thanks so much for, Thank for sharing Thank Brazil you. with us. Um, this is going to be out in spring 2020. So is there anything happening in spring 2020 our listeners might want to direct our attention to? Or secret things that you can tell us but we'll cut out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Brexit might still be going on. Sure, sure, sure. So you're plugging Brexit. (laughs) Not plugging Brexit. I've I've just done a short film, actually, which does have quite a nice surreal thing in it, um, which is uh, about women's anger and um, someone ends up punching. It's quite fun. Uh, Look out for that. That's part of something called The Uncertain Kingdom which is a sort of project where 20 films were commissioned about 2019. 
um, and a lot of different things. So there's that. I've where, got, where might people be able? Well, to I think find it's going to be. I think it's going to be released. Oh, cool. We've actually got a release, and I think the idea with those uh, is they want to travel them around and do kind of show maybe eight or ten of them, and and do kind of town hall conversations and try and use them as a kind of talking point. So. I don't know how they're going to do it yet, but it's there's some really great people making these shorts, and they're totally different kind of genres, and they're going to be really fun. Cool. One of them's an animation. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So you should. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's cool. So there's that, and then I've just got, you know, the the usual uh, lineup of films I'm trying to get financed. So mm. there's nothing, um, you know, nothing I can tell you now, but. Uh, Hopefully soon. And what about, um, can people find you online, on social media? Yes, I am on Twitter at Hope Dickel, and I'm on Instagram at uh-huh. Film Hope at Large. Love it. I don't know, man. It was, you know. <laughs> it's like that thing where you have MSN email addresses or Hotmail email addresses that are like lucky stars at something and you never change them. And you're my like, personal email is still AOL. And I'm are you still AOL? Oh, ah, you see, Hope Dickel was my, that was my first email was Hope Dickel at AOL. Okay. Dickel is Dixon Leach, Hopefully right? Hopefully not still already to No, 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 it's yeah. not. But so Hope Dickel has then become this kind of handle sure. that goes with me everywhere, which sure. is kind of fun. We'll credit you fully when the podcast is released, though. Sure, sure. (laughs) But thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, Hope. You can find us on Twitter at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. You can check out the website, fantasy-animation.org, where you can read our latest blog posts and download some previous episodes. Um, But this has been Fantasy Animation for another episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye.